G'day, guys. It is the coach. Hello. Hope you all well. Welcome. Uh, wow. What a butchered introduction. I'll just go to my guest. We are kicking off a new series that I'm calling TO Talk, and it is really focused about helping our tournament organizers, event organizers, and sharing best practice and insights and wisdoms and tips and things to help either you run an event, get better at running an event, scaling your event and making it go even bigger, or something in between. Because um, there are a lot of events out there and I know everyone's trying to get better. And because they're often so regional, it is hard to find out what everyone's doing. So I thought with, with the best way to do this would be kick off with probably the world's best TO. Uh, he is the man who runs Call to Glory at CanCon, which is Australia's world's and the probably the universe's biggest Age of Sigmar event. Uh, Clint, how are you? I'm good, Anthony. You've just annoyed somebody on another planet who runs a bigger AOS event than me. So prepare for prepare for some sort of alien abduction or something as repercussions for that. Look, if somebody <laughs> comes down from Mars and wants to take me to their match play to the two day tournament or three day tournament, or maybe uh, it, it's a light years tournament that they're going to run uh, a, a two thousand point match play battle in mars i will happily be transported just let me know so i can bring my gargants or uh let me know what their players pack looks like so i can prepare <laughs> for the for the mars better well absolutely you want to make sure that you've checked the players pack to know what the expectations are but let's face it if there's games on mars people are going to go to mars especially at the moment <laughs> well, look, mate, I've, been, I've been i've been learning a lot about the different communities you know obviously we had the um the asian-based discussion a couple of months ago i've been learning about spain i've been learning about germany i've been learning learning about russia but i can't say that i know a lot about the uh the intergalactic meta so uh, who knows maybe they maybe the intergalactic meta they treat destruction a little bit better than they do here on planet earth yeah can you imagine gw prices on mars um <laughs> probably cheaper they transport things but i'm into my destruction mode today is the pre-order day of gargants i'm wearing a very sexy shirt that was given to me by a friend of the channel ken and more importantly we are here talking about players packs despite the randomness that we went around <laughs> Mars. Uh, how on earth we got to that, I have no idea. But we are talking about players' packs. And the reason we're talking about players' packs is because it's a consistent and fundamental resource that is important for both the tournament organiser, the support staff, and the players. And for me, it really sets the scene. But Clint, uh, for anyone who doesn't know who Clint is, Clint, you've been in Age of Sigma since day one. You are in Australia the godfather. And uh, uh, many of us would probably say that if it wasn't for Clint, we wouldn't be where we are today. Um, certainly, I know he's probably feeling very uncomfortable and awkward with that, but certainly he really helped set the scene at CanCon, the very first one that, that kicked off the meta and has just gone from strength to strength. And part of that has come back to the clarity, the purpose and the direction coming from the players pack. So Clint, you've been playing, uh, we played at the Masters, you play Death, uh, you are a Age of Sigma player through and through, despite the 40k mug. Yeah, which people saw earlier. Yeah, AOS through and through. Definitely. So let's let's kick off. Let's kick it off. And uh, I, I want to know from you, why why is a players pack so important? And why would I start the series talking about its players pack? And, and essentially a document, a PDF, a, a word, uh, might be a, an image. Why on earth do we start talking about the players pack? And why is it so important as an event organizer? And why do we keep telling people, read the players pack? 
<laughs> uh, we keep telling people read the players pack so they stop asking us questions that we've already answered. No. Um, so the players pack is a really important document that uh, sets out every, it sets out your expectations as a as a TO for your players. It gives them all the information, or it should give them all the information that they need uh, to play in your event. Um, everything from what armies to bring and how you're scoring it and where where it is. You know, even down to where the event is and how long and times and whatever. But it's also good because it gives players the opportunity to see what sort of event that you are running and to see if it's going to suit them as well, rather than just going in blind and getting surprised on the day when it's uh, four rounds of 2,000 points with skirmish at the end of it and everyone's got to wear a hat. Um, so it's really good for setting the the ground rules and setting the expectations for the event for both the t for both the to and and the players um and it's an important resource for people to refer back to if they have questions and things like that so yeah for, for me the players pack has really evolved over time but at its core it's for me the tournament organizer or the event organizer it doesn't have to be a tournament it could be a narrative event it could be a team's event it could be just something that's happening at your local store and for me as the event organizer, it allows me to set the scene and, and tell people who want to come or who are coming, how am I going to run this event? When you pay your dollary dues and you come to my event, what should you expect? What can you expect from me? What can you expect from other players? And what do I expect from you coming from the event? And it's it's the, essentially the document that I manage the event against whether it is the way I handle um, negative play experiences, the way that we manage terrain, the way that I'm going to look at people's painting and any requirements as a part of list building or, or painting uh, restrictions. For me, it is a government's document so that everyone is clear on what to expect from my event. And if you don't like it, this is not the event for you, go find another event. As, as rude as it is, because I don't want you to come to my event and have a misaligned expectation that, oh, this is what I wasn't expecting. I was expecting more of a fun, casual event. Uh, I was expecting something with, I don't know, malign sorcery artifacts, and now you've told me I can't bring them. Um, whatever it might be, it's, it's the expectations for all. Mm. Yep, absolutely. It's one of those things that people should always read before they spend their money on an event ticket. Um, unless, of course, you know that if you're familiar with the event, you know, it's the fourth year of, you know, CanCon or something like that, tickets always go out before the players pack do for, does for CanCon generally. So, um, but yeah, no, you definitely have to make sure that you've read it and understand what sort of event it is so that, yeah, everyone, everyone gets to enjoy the event the way that it should be enjoyed. Yeah, and, and you know we we will break down this. Yeah, I guess the art and the science of players packs um, using one of Clint's examples. And Clint, by no means, is the silver bullet. It's not the magical document, but it's something that has been refined over time. That no matter which event you kind of go to, uh, you go to a CanCon, you go to a um, uh, Call to Glory, you know what you're expecting. And uh, even if Clint doesn't bring out his players pack, I know one of my challenges is that my big event, Sydney GT. I sell my tickets before the General's Handbook, so I usually put tickets out May, June, um, and my event is October. So it means that I have to sell tickets before I can tell people what's going to be in the pack because I don't know 
I didn't know Malign Sorcery wasn't going to be around. I have no idea the restrictions on um, Endless Spells. I have no idea what's happening with Mercenary. So uh, I'm going to sell my tickets in advance. But you build consistency over time and people kind of, unless unless you are someone who changes your format every year, you can kind of take your document and build upon it all the time. So um, it's almost like you build it once and then you constantly refine it uh, for consistency and, you know, taking on people's feedback. Absolutely. And I sort of joked with you just before we went on air uh, that I'd, I'd actually, as prep for this discussion, gone back and had a look at the first player's pack I ever wrote, expecting it to be a bit of a, a bit of a crapshoot, um, especially being for old school Warhammer. Um, but the similarities between it and what I write now are quite, quite interesting in, in that it has been an evolution for the past sort of five, six years and just building on top of it and refining it. What what percentage of your players pack do you reckon has changed since the first call to glory? So by the way, the first call to glory started at 50 odd players, went to a hundred, went to 200. Well, technically it went like 48, 110, <laughs> 220, 200. Just round it. <laughs> Calm down now. Um. <laughs> I, I, I don't want someone to ping me, but like, but like you've scaled yeah. over time, but you basically yeah. you've gone from a 50 player event, which is still big to 200 and essentially 50 players. You've, you've, you know, you've massive, but how much of that document has changed despite the scale over amount of years, generals, handbooks, malign sorcery, forbidden power, like how much has actually changed? Um, the overall structure of it, not a lot. Uh, because you're always going to tell people the, the details, like your timetables and what armies they need to bring and how they need to submit it and all that sort of stuff. You know, um, uh, etiquette expectations and things like that. Uh, but the, the fine detail has changed over time because the game of Age of Sigma has changed over time. You know, the first Call to Glory was run with the first General's Handbook, um, you know, and we had some generic artifacts and not a lot of allegiance abilities and no malign sorcery and no this, no that. And so there was, there was six, six scenarios back then one t terrain table, um, reinforcement uh, points were a thing. Command you know. abilities only came from the general. <laughs> yep. like, was so just... The game was so different back then. So even though the overall structure hasn't changed that much, the minutia has has sort of changed as the game's gone on, as, and we need to as we and we needed to address different things. and And the first, the first uh, called glory um, was a two list event too, which is something that we never repeated. So that is true. <laughs> that is true. And you didn't have restrictions like they had to come from the same. That, like... I I think they had to come from the same Grand Alliance. Yeah. Um, but that was that was it. So yeah, that we only did it once. Someone like me only changed a couple of units. I think some people went completely madhouse, and that's why the, <laughs> we got so many lists came through. Because I think because there were only six scenarios, we got so many lists that came through with uh, three places of power list written on them because they were the ones that were hero stacked, and everything else was to win all the other scenarios. So that kind of indicated where we'd gone wrong on that. Insane, insane. So I guess, you know, again, players packs, it is consistent. And, you know, some people, you may not even have to create a document. I, I do see some some local stores will just do it in the Facebook page. They'll write down some of the rules and restrictions and the expectations and how they might be distributing prizes. And I guess these are all the things you need to consider when you're setting up the event. 
And the beautiful thing is there are now so many players packs that are out there. You don't have to rec- recreate the wheel, you know, um, steal, borrow, inspire, look at so many different people. But I guess the, the first question I have before we get into an actual players pack is what do you think is the critical, I guess that fundamental information that should be in every players pack? Um, okay. Um, so your where it, it's super basic, how many people, where it is, what time, how big the army is, and and what you expect people to bring, basically, I think. Um, they're the fundamentals because other than that, you know, things can be sort of um, a little bit more flexible or a little bit more up in the air in terms of like prizes and things like that. Because if you're a local store and, you know, your players pack is essentially the Facebook event description, you don't know if you're going to have 10 people on the day or 20 people on the day. And so it's hard to sort of determine prizes and things like that. And I think people have the expectation with events like that, that it is a bit more flexible. Mm. So I think what is essential changes depending on the style of event that you're running. I think, but the fundamentals are where it is, what time, like how big and where Cost. people can buy tickets. Yeah. Like those, those kind of things um, are super essential because obviously you want people to come and turn up on the same, at the right time. I think, the, I think there's probably one more thing that I would say is essential is things like painting requirements. Um, so mm, yeah. so oh, if, if there is one, you know, like that's a big, yeah. Well, even even if you, you aren't, like, you know, if you're running, if I'm a, a local friendly game store and I don't mind if people come in with their unpainted models, if I want to test out the new Gargan army, if I want to try out my new toys, are you expecting my whole army to be painted and based or are, are you okay with grey models? Um, even that, just that standard, even though if I've never been to your game store, um, setting that scene, um, some people have, you know, some, some of my local stores, people have brought in, their old, I don't know, Island of Blood Skaven still on their square bases. Are you willing to accept that or are you not? So I think thinking about the standards that you want to manage by, um, because as you know, Clint, the worst thing as a TO you can do is pull someone's models off the table. Um, and I say that because I don't mind kicking people out who are being disruptive, but taking someone's toys off the table is not a good time. So being very clear on what you expect. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So for the rest of this discussion, it's really going to be centered around a player's pack. There are a lot of different players pack we could have brought up. Clint, we could have brought up your very first one. I could have brought up many of my Sydney GT ones. I've got a player's pack for my narrative event that's coming up next year. I've run, you know, doubles events. You know, we could have brought up Gabe uh, Gabe from the Runax. He's doing uh, a discussion with us later about teams, so a a four-on-four kind of battle. So I guess, you know, this is kind of just putting some context and some flavour around the discussion and breaking down what makes a good players pack. So mm-hmm. without further ado, you are the Heralds of War, uh, lovely little branding, and this is Call to Glory. So talk to me a little bit about Call to Glory. What is it? What's it all about? And how does this document kind of set the scene for all of us? So Call to Glory was what we ended up calling our AOS event at CanCon. Um, it was called something else the first year, Australian Championships or something like that. But we decided on Call to Glory because it was a bit more generic and um, and and we have a bit of fun with uh, our little subtitle like last year or 
this year, gosh, this year. Um, <laughs> uh, this year it was called the Jade Kingdoms, uh, which meant that we were centering it around Gur. But Call to Glory itself is, you know, it's Australia's sort of premier Age of Sigmar event. You know, we have people coming from all over Australia and the globe to come and play Age of Sigmar, you know, with arguably one of the best AOS communities in the world, being the Australians. We're a, we're a top bunch. Um, you know, we come and play. And what that does is it brings together competitive people, narrative people, you know, your, your mega hobbyists like uh, Danny Carroll and Blake Kerwick and things like that, um, you know, and we've got this big mixing pot. And so the Call of Glory Players Pack has to address all those different groups and try and make sure that they all know what to expect, but also to cater to them a little bit as well. So, yeah, it's a very... It, the Players Pack itself has to be fairly expensive and... and um, try and touch on all those areas. And what's really cool about Call to Glory or CanCon or, you know, because CanCon is the convention. Uh, yeah. Can, it, it's kind of thrown around interchangeably, but CanCon is the convention. You run the event. You know, the one thing that I really love about your event and is that you cater for both the competitive match play players who are there to win it. They want to take out CanCon. But you've also got the people who just want to come down and have a weekend of Warhammer, probably away from their kids, probably away from their families, and just catch up with their mates and have a really good time. You've also then got this other element of players who, who don't care. They are very narrative orientated, and you actually cater to them really well with a narrative bingo system. And regardless of where you are in the spectrum of I'm there to go, you know, 6-0, and oh, or I just want to have a good time, this document really kind of sets the scene that it's welcoming for all and it kind of then articulates how you're going to do that. Yeah, and for some people, quite a quite a large portion, and you you did a show, um, you know, in your KenCon Stats show earlier this year, you know, or the percentage of people who this is their first event or this is their first sort of non-store-based tournament, you know, it's quite large. So it's important that we... We make sure those people know what's expected as well, not just folks who this is their fourth CanCon or, you know, they've been playing events for forever. You know, you want to make sure that everyone knows what's going on and everyone starts off at that level. So that's, yeah. So it starts uh, off with the welcome. Um, and I, I really like it. I think this this spot for me um, is all about just me as a tournament organiser, sharing my personality, kind of welcoming people, and just letting them know what to expect by reading this document. So what's what's the welcome to you and you know should it be always included? Like how's it how's it come about for you? Um I always put the welcome in. Um I think I always have uh, just cuz I think it's important to tell people what's going to be in the players pack and things like that. And also to um I have that line in there crediting writers of other players packs because Everybody borrows from everyone else, but I think it's important to acknowledge that um, and just sort of thank them for the work that they do. And then sort of the last two or three years, I think it's the last two, we've put the objective in just so it's, it is a very much a statement of what we want to do with the tournament. Not every player's pack has to have this, you know, um, but I think it's something that we do. Um, yep. 
But it's nice as well because there's a couple of things here that I really enjoy. It shares the objective. Is this going to be a uh, destroy your opponents and ignoring sports scores? Is this going to be a open, wild, crazy narrative event? Is this going to be, hell, you've even got the names of the assistants, right? You know, you've got Dennis in there. So if nothing more, when I come to the event, if this is my first event, if I have a challenge, I at least know that the support team is Clint, Dennis, and there's a team. So a bit more clarity of what to expect, not only at the event pack itself, but on the day. Yep. And this for me, I've also put in things like any narrative, anything around um, ideas. I know this is setting Gairan, not Gur. Um, this was setting Gairan. What's up? No, <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm prodding you because you said this was setting Gur. Did I earlier? Yeah. yeah, you did. It's all good. Well, it's all good. We'll forgive you. But I don't even remember. I know I, I talked about Jade Kingdom's bit, but I didn't. Oh, gosh. It's all good. It's all I'm good. Slipping. It's, I'm slipping. I'm slipping. They're going to take my crown. It's, it's been a long year. Anyway, so you've got yeah. your objective. Yes. We've welcomed people to the scene. And then we said a little bit about the schedule. So we've got our event details. We've got our schedule. You've come out and said, you know, when the event is, where it's going to be, uh, any any cap, any hard cap. I know, especially during COVID or even outside of COVID, uh, certain venues don't have the capacity just to keep growing and growing and growing. So setting that limit, kind of that FOMO. If you want a spot and you sit there and go, oh, 240 spots, that are uh, that's uh, I'll, I'll grab my ticket next week, next month. Clint, how quickly do your events sell out? Uh taking out the time that the server was down because we crashed it, it was less than 12 hours. We crashed it. <laughs> we crashed it. Tickets went like, up at midnight. Uh, we crashed the system at like within half an hour. Past 12, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was pretty. It was down pretty quickly. It was up a couple of hours later. Um, but, yeah, they were all sold out by lunchtime the following day. All I know is I slept well because I had my ticket in the first five minutes. But you've gone out and said the cost. You've, uh, you know, you include things like if lunch is included or not. Uh, that's always a pretty helpful thing. When registrations might be open, list when lists are due. That's probably something that uh, may be unique, uh, unique to Australia. Uh, I know certain communities don't have this, but talk to me about this whole list due thing. Um, so I, I think it's it's primarily a holdover from older editions of Warhammer um, in their events, basically making sure that lists are in because sometimes list, lists can be incorrect. Um, by accident or by design, I've never run into someone who's done it on purpose. Like it's always an accident or just not knowing uh, the game enough. Uh, so we get those lists due in, especially with like, it would be awful um, to travel. So I travel 14 hours to CanCon. Other people travel from, you know, Scotland and, you know, some people travel 10 minutes, some people travel days. And it would be awful to get to the event to find out that your list is wrong. So um, we do the list checking beforehand, but that also lets us go through. We check the lists. We make sure they're all good. But then we get them into the hands of people like yourself who love to do stats and list reviews and all that sort of stuff as well. And I think it's important for the the pre-event build-up that we kind of have those on hands and we can we can talk about them and, and um, have, yeah, make sure that they're they're right basically 
The, the other cool thing that it does as well, and by the way, for anyone who wants to buy me a birthday present, the list due day here was actually my birthday, 11th of January. So feel free to send the birthday presents along for next year. Um, but <laughs> I remember that. That was awesome. But more important, one thing as well uh, that we didn't capture just then was that Games Workshop will often put in erratas, FAQs, points changes. There may be implementations like Battle Tomes uh, as well into an event. And I think for you as well, one of the cool things for a list due date is that it allows you to say, look, any new rules that come in after this day will not be accepted. So everyone who's been preparing their tournament, who's been building a list, painting their list, should Games Workshop change the points, I don't know, on the 12th of January, too bad, list is submitted, we play as is. Now, I know, I know, Clint, you're a little bit worried right now because we did have a lesson learnt and that was letting letting a couple of battle tomes in past past the day, or that weren't didn't receive an FAQ uh, mm. before list submission, and that created some negative play experiences. <coughs> change host. Yeah, and I've also what that that discussion has reminded me of is I think we actually shifted this due date um, to the Monday because we had some battle tomes coming out on that eleventh. Um, that, you know, hotly anticipated that people wanted to use. And traditionally at CanCon, we've let people use the new stuff because, you know, I think the year before that it was Gits. You know, Gits had come out yeah. and they were due the day that like, lists were due the day that book came out or the Sunday or something like that, and we let people use it. year before that was, was Nurgle. And we've got a history of letting people use the cool stuff, like because, like, you've just got this new book. Why, you know, it'd be great. Yeah. There were some repercussions, but what also happened is we shifted list due date to the Monday at midnight, and at about 12.05, GW dropped the FAQ for Slaves to Darkness. So probably what we'll do in going forward, and this might be good advice for others as well, is to make it like a Friday. So you, you avoid the books that drop on your due date, and you avoid a surprise FAQ like two minutes after you're thing closes so um and yeah we learned the lesson and i think going forward it hadn't been an issue previously but we learned a lesson this year like and and from now on you know stuff with an faq doesn't go into tournaments and i think that's fairly universal now but um it was it was a bit awkward being the the uh the example by by which other tournaments learned, unfortunately. But, but in saying all of that, I, I will call out that, um, you know, as a Gits player, when, when Gits came out, um, I had to build and submit my list within 24 hours of the battle tone being in my hands, and then I had to then build an entire army. And as, as a player, if you would have said to me, Anthony, look, you don't have your FAQs out just yet, you have to use Moon Clan not use your new toys, not use any of the cool stuff, I know that's equally disappointing. So I guess I just wanted to call that out. As a tournament organiser, you may want to think about not just the experience of the player who may be able to use their new rules or not use their new rules, but also the players that that person's going to interact with. And in in many cases in Australia, I've seen uh, Brizhammer or Brizcon let uh, deep, Deepkin in. I let in uh, Beast of Chaos, uh, before the FAQs dropped, you know, you've let a lot of things in. But I don't, I don't want to harp on it, but I guess I just want to point out the list due date or at least setting a day to say any rules, whether it's battle tomes, FAQs, erratas, a hard date, at least everyone kind of knows what to expect. So something to keep in mind. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you've got some contact details. I love the contact details as well. It allows people, if they need to reach out to you, either an email address or WhatsApp. I've been trying to think about how people can interact with me digitally uh, during the day. Should they have an issue? If they're having an issue with a player and they're not comfortable kind of bringing it up or calling over a TO, you know, something like this, like a WhatsApp, like a Facebook messenger, like a Discord, um, yeah. these are all great ways to kind of pull the TO without making a, a, a big song and dance or, you know, embarrassing, feeling like you're embarrassing yourself uh, when actually you just have a simple question. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And I'm, I'm glad that my number is elsewhere on the internet. Otherwise, I probably would have had a small heart attack about you flashing it up on the, on YouTube, but that's all good. I mean, you've already published it to the world. Yeah, uh, well, I only pub- I, I publish it because it's already a public uh, mobile number. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't. But, um, yeah, I'm comfortable with that. Otherwise, you've got your schedule here. Uh, any mm-hmm. reason why you kick off early, like an eight thirty rego? Why? Why would I? Why would I have a registration time? Like that. That seems simple, right? I just rock up to my table. I'm just like, yo, I'm here. Yep. So registration allows players to come in and uh, give come and chat to the tos. Either pick up any paraphernalia that you're giving out on the day players packets and little baggies of goodies or to get their name ticked off primarily to say that they're here because drops on the morning of a tournament happen um, and quite often you're doing a draw for a tournament the night before or a day before or whatever so when people can't make it in that morning you know generally like with legitimate excuses and things like that you know um, you need to know who's there and not there to be able to reshuffle that um that uh, draw and make sure everybody gets a game. Um, and it also gives people time to get to the event as well. So pe- some people uh, just have a habit of being late all the time. So if you tell people 8.30, but you're not knock- starting until 9, um, that you've got a nice bracket for people to sort of arrive and unpack their armies out of their cases and just get themselves sorted out. So it's always good to have that buffer time and, and making sure that everyone's there who should be there and to, to fix up any issues and um, things like that. So. While, while half an hour seems like a lot of time, it actually isn't. Uh, and I, I find that most people start trickling in. If I say an 8.30 start or an 8.30 registration for a 9 o'clock start, I truly mean dice start rolling at 9 o'clock. And if you're not here by 9 o'clock, um, Within 10 minutes, you will lose the round. I'll, I'll forfeit the round on you. Uh, it's unfair that your opponent is sitting there without a game. You've got to unpack your models and stuff. So, you know, you've got to be at the table by 9 o'clock. But also, as you said, you've got to pull up the draw. What happens if somebody uh, – and things happen in life. People get sick. People's kids get sick. They get called into work. Um, their car breaks down. All these things can happen, right? So um, yeah. there's going to be times where you're going to have to manipulate the draw and match players up because someone can't make it or they're running late. Uh, I had somebody had food poisoning at my last Sydney GT, so it just happens. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And then sometimes, very occasionally, people just disappear into the ether. (laughs) Like, just you never hear from them. They bought tickets. They were submitted a list. They sometimes issued a grudge, and then you never see them again. (laughs) <laughs> just and it does happen and then you've got to then find an opponent for that person and uh, sort all that out so a couple of other things you got here you've got your lunch so i like you got a 45 minute lunch so obviously that's some considerations right uh 
you know, I'm running an event in December. It's a small one-day event that uh, I don't have as much time or I certainly don't want the game to run from 8.30 in the morning till 6.30 at night. So one of the ways that I'm trying to reduce down my lunch break is to actually supply lunch. Maybe it could be pizzas, burgers, uh, Subway, whatever it might be. Again, co being COVID safe um, and things like that. But, um, you know, thinking about the way that you're going to run an event. If you are at a certain space that allows you to be in a, for a certain time, maybe the, the, the local store that you play at closes at five o'clock, you may need to think about um, how you best use your time. Maybe you can't do a 2,000 point. Maybe it's a 1,500 point. Maybe, uh, you know, like maybe the registration happens online and you only have a 10-minute window. Um, you know what I mean? Like this, you can play around with your times and you got to think about the experience. The last thing you want to do is people to rush uh, and, you, and people do need their, their breaks as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's one thing to consider is, is your round times and trying to fit that into your day and then making sure that people have a meaningful break in the middle because otherwise they get to the end of game three or even get to the start of game three and they're just knackered, you know? Um, yeah, they need to have breaks. Uh, and, one, and one, one thing I do say to players a lot as well is at lunch breaks is if you if your game finishes on time or early, go take lunch because especially at something like a convention or even like, you know, in your local community, if 30 players, 50 players, 100 players all swarm a very similar location, uh, that, that could get delayed quite significantly. Um, I know I've been at tournaments where we've de completely destroyed the location's uh, kitchens and it's blown out, like it's blown out lunch breaks to like 90 minutes. And then that has a flow on effect. Um, people yep. aren't eating or they're trying to eat at their gaming table or the round doesn't start for another 30 minutes. So think about that lunch break, preparing the kitchen if there are local stores or uh, if you're at a venue that has a kitchen or, you know, like a buffet or something. Yeah, making sure that they know that they're going to have 50 nerds at 12 o'clock is probably a good thing, you know, so... Yeah, no, I'll never forget I think the Sydney, second Sydney Slaughter. Yeah, I, I wasn't going to call, that, call yeah. it out, but yes, it oh, was that was Slaughter. A, uh, look, it, wasn't, it was nothing to do with the TO. It was everything to do with that venue not being prepared for the booking that they had. So, um, yeah, that was, that was pretty full on. A couple of other things you've got in here is you've got your coolest army voting, you've got your packing up and tallying. A couple of things, I guess. Why is coolest army on day two as opposed to day one? Um, is there any is there any reason why you've got it after the lunch break as opposed to within a lunch break? Like, what's the science behind what you've done here? So we have it on day two because we shortlist. Obviously, with two hundred odd people, like so. This is this is fairly specific to larger events. Is you know, if you're any, running anything more than probably sixty people, you probably want to shortlist. Um, yeah, so so that maybe a hundred uh, plus. You want a shortlist because you don't you don't have time for two hundred players to look at one hundred and fifty armies and decide which is the coolest because they don't get to look at them properly. That's a heck of a lot of people moving around, especially at the moment, um, and it just it doesn't work well. And you're going to have armies that might win on ten votes, you know, out of two hundred people. So. Um, we shortlist on day one. We tell people, look, you know, make sure you come back tomorrow. You're shortlisted. Well done. Bring your display board. And then we get them set up after game four. Um, and that gives them time during lunch to set up or after their game, if the game runs long. 
Um, and then we have a dedicated time so that everybody can go and have their lunch break and come back and then vote. You know, we've it, previously, I think, not last year, the year before, it was in the lunch break. And, yeah. and when we tallied up the votes, we didn't get a good enough percentage of the players that voted. Like, we just weren't happy with, like, it being a good percentage of the player base because some people didn't get back from lunch until, like, right on the money and they didn't get to vote and whatever. So by having a dedicated time, it also means that um, those armies are set up for that specific time and they get voted on and then they get packed down rather than people trying to pack their armies down towards the end of lunch so that they can be prepared for the next round, which is always a thing. Um, yeah, I think it's just good a good time to have a dedicated voting spot. I like it. And you and we can talk about how, you know, shortlisting was obviously you as a tournament organiser, going around looking at people, and, and we'll talk about point uh, paint scores a little bit later, but you looking at people who you think um, are, are worthy of, being up for display someone who actually has a chance of winning um and it's obviously very disappointing if you're not shortlisted but you're right for 240 odd players to to potentially set themselves up you're not going to you know it's very unlikely that army was going to be nominated anyway or win a prize but it allows you to really focus in on the 20 or 30 in in your case who who are in it with a real shot yeah i think we did fifth between 15 and 20 and basically what we did is we just got i went and looked dennis went and looked and the other assistants went and looked and they we all wrote lists basically and then you see who is on everyone's lists and they go on the short list and you kind of work your way down um you know you might go have a second or third look at something because people like oh you know that's really good and you might not have noticed things um yeah so the other thing as well I just want to call out is I like that you've got the pack up and tallying. It's something that uh, tournament organisers put a lot of effort in running the event. Uh, we, I, I could probably say 99.999% of event organisers are not being paid. It's not like we get a kick of your money. That $65 is not going into my pocket. Um, it's going into like administration costs, running, uh, investment in prizes, investment in you know, things like tables and battle mats and terrain and venue. Uh, venue costs. There's a lot of things that go in this, right? I, I am literally, I'd be lucky at, if I was running an event at $65, I would be lucky to get a dollar per player in my pocket. Mm. Not even that. Like it's literally, but anyway, where am I going with this is uh, the, the dedicated pack up and tallying time and uh, asking people uh, who are in a position to help help pack things up, pack up terrain, pack up tables, and take a little bit of that burden off you, given the, the, the amount of investment you've made over these two days and leading into the event. Well, it's, it's a many hands makes light work thing. So, you know, we have those three boards on each table, you know, that if you're finished your game and you're done, if you pack up those three boards and stick them on the end, that makes it a lot easier for us to pack up the end because it still takes time. We were there until midnight uh, cancon yeah. this year like it was hours of pack up just because there's just so much of it but i've been to events where they don't do presentations until all the trains packed up and away you know and all the tables are put away and all the chairs are put away and whatever and i think that's good because i've also seen events where they do presentations and then everyone pisses yeah. off and it's three people who are packing everything up so I don't do, which, I don't do which is unfair i don't do presentations until uh, everything's packed away. So I'm very lucky to have people with vans and, and who people will help. But 
for me to pack up 50 tables, 100 tables, that takes me hours with 50 people or 100 people who have enjoyed my event. If they put in, I don't know, five minutes of their time each, that could save me hours. So um, something that you might want to consider. It's even just as simple as the terrain on your table is desert themed. Go and put it in the desert themed box and you have just saved somebody a lot of time. You know, so we're not asking people to do heavy lifting and load utes and things like that. They don't want to, but like it's just little things like that that makes it overall very, very easy. And then presentations happen quicker. So yeah, and we're all happy. Um, now we get into the army. The army. So you've you've said here the army size. So it's a two thousand point game. You have told us that it is match play. You've told us that we're using the general's handbook two thousand and nineteen. You've mentioned that Forge World is accepted. You've mentioned that uh, Compendium uh, is also accepted. So now that is called Legends. If people are wondering what Compendium is referring to, we are now talking about uh, Legends. Uh, at the time, you've said mercenary and mercenary companies can be used. We obviously know that's been changed now. but uh, And you've also said that uh, Firestorm won't be included. So you've really, again, set the scene of what you would expect. Uh, do I accept malign sorcery and forbidden power? Am I accepting supplementary b- battle tomes? Am I accepting Forge World? Am I accepting third-party miniatures, you know, th- th- from uh, 3D-printed miniatures? Or is this a Games Workshop Oh, Citadel only miniature. You know, you've really started setting the scene of what you expect. Yep, absolutely, and and it, that's just because you've got to make sure that people have um, from from the beginners right through have expectations about what what to use. So um, yeah, and and things like mercenaries and mercenary companies, which were sort of you know narrative transitioning into possibly match play you know it's good to make sure that where you stand on that and in the end it didn't come up but anyway <laughs> you've also got things like your list submission so again you know when Which when people are right. submitting your list in advance when uh what needs to be included uh do, do all of your spell casters have to have their spells listed on their sheet or are you allowing people to pick different spells before the round commences um, do people have to choose their artifacts and their prayers? Uh, is it randomly rolled? Like, what are you expecting from a list generation point of view? And I think some of this stuff that we're making sure that people have on their lists, I think was optional at one stage, but now it's, you know, part of the actual pitch battle rules in the general's handbook. So, you know, the revision of this might not have that, you know, it might just say refer to pages, this and this, um, but it's important to make people uh, so we've got in there generating an out of war scroll builder uh, because it produces a format that's easy to, to read. And I think it's important that you set out that expectation for people um, because there are a number of ways that people can submit armies. And when you've got to check them, you want them to be nice and easy. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's a big thing. And then obviously telling people what will happen if they do it wrong. <laughs> I've, uh, there's been plenty of times where I've looked at like a post tournament review. I think I was looking at LVO. Um, I think Jack came fourth. I remember, I remember uh, checking Jack from Reoling Ones and watching how his, I think he was doing Shoot Cast or Cities of Sigma at the time. And I, I remember kind of watching how he was going at LVO. And I was looking at one of his opponents and in Best Coast pairings, they had 
a handwritten army list for his opponent. And it's really hard to read. It's obviously not consistent. And everyone's, you know, like, but long, long story short, I like the consistency and making sure, again, from a PDF point of view, it's all generated from uh, from Games Workshop. It's free and... Um, mm. uh, yeah, it's an, access, an accessible tool that everyone's got. Um, and it, it's nice and compact too because uh, Azir can... Azir lists are unnecessarily long, um, yeah. in my opinion, and, but... Um, and people like Dan from AOS Shorts loves to retweet uh, people who do well, so make it easy for him. Absolutely. <laughs> you've mentioned here six rounds. Obviously, CanCon being such a large event, you've said six rounds. So, yep. uh, but you've you've said how how many how long the rounds are going to be. Uh, you've mentioned as well the realm. So you're, we are going to be playing in the realm, and how that was going to play out. Whether we were just going to use the spell, the artifact, the commands. Um, how are we going to use malign sorcery or core? You know, you really illustrated again what to expect. And obviously, this has changed again in General's Handbook. That's not important. Yeah. What is important is this is the expectations of the TO. Yep, absolutely. Um, where our battle plans are coming from, because that's important, um, and where the battle plans are. So some people choose to put the battle plans in their players' pack. Um, we used to, and then we didn't, and now we do a separate document uh, because it gives us... So it's important that the players' pack is out so people can make the decision whether they want to come. But if you then tell them in that players' pack where you're taking battle plans from. They're not going to be custom. They're going to be from the General's Handbook this. They're always going to be the latest versions. So people still know what to expect with the battle plans, even if they don't know them ahead of time and can purchase their tickets. And then that gives you extra time. It, well, it gives us extra time to look at what everyone else is doing with battle plans as well. Like if you see 10 tournaments that use the same five battle plans, you're probably going to just adjust it slightly so people get to play something new. Um, and it also gives us time to consider what we want to do. Um, and because we have a bit of a narrative spin on the way that we use, like in the, or the order that we use the battle plans and the way we want to link them together, they're still straight out of the book, but we just write a little bit of a wrapper around them. You know, it gives me extra time to do that as well. Um, There's a bit of pros and cons, I guess, when I think of battle plans, right? If you announce your battle plans in advance, it means that people will practice those scenarios only and they'll build a list for those scenarios. Now, I'm not saying that's good or bad. Like, I'm just stating a fact. If you list them in advance, people will get comfortable and confident with those scenarios. They'll build to that scenario. Cool. If you don't announce it, there is that element of surprise. It means that people are building and practicing for the full 18 battle plans that are potentially available. Now, that may mean uh, people may bring things that they may not want to use. They may just have to have a couple of extra heroes just in case this might happen. Or they're thinking about things different ways. And you're almost re rewarding flexibility and adaptability at the time. Now, some people, some people like the practice and the focus on the five or the six. Some people think that people are just gaming and manipulating their lists for that five or six and they don't like that focus. So I'm not saying what's better, what's worse. I think there's cases for both, but be deliberate. Yeah. I think with 18 now, um, well, you know, six in the core book that people don't tend to want to use a lot, but, um, you know, tw 12 in the general's handbook, I think it's that's an awful lot to try and know all of. So I think kind of tr expecting people to 
know all of them and be able to just play them on the day is possibly a bit much. So I, I, I do quite like um, having them in a document somewhere, you know, before the event. And if you are trying to keep people on schedule in a hard two-hour, 45-minute, including deployment, you don't want them spending five or ten minutes of their precious time looking up the battle plan, looking up how you win, looking at how the deployment zones are set up, how you score. You know, that's all. That's 10 or 15 vital minutes that could be the difference mm -hmm. between um, a game going for the full five rounds or something that has to be called in, in round three or round four. So um, keep that in mind. It, it happens anyway, um, but you want to make sure that people are sort of prepared. Yeah. Uh, the last thing you've got here is the scoring. So the way uh, you are going to determine essentially the winner, how you're going to distribute your prizes and what it's going to be based upon. So you've gone out here and said that there is going to be some, some painting and you've said some best opponent stuff. And we'll talk a bit about how we do that. But you've also got then how you determine the victory. And I like you've got some really interesting mechanics here. Again, this is General's Handbook 19, not 20. This may have changed if CanCon was going to run in... 21 but the point is you've got here you know the major or the minor or the draw the win or the loss how that kind of is determined uh the secondary objectives um there was one that i really enjoyed is you gave a point for denying your opponent's objective and then you also then had this this tally of did i kill a thousand points or did i uh not lose a thousand points and i think that's a really interesting mechanic because it's not about just crushing your opponent into the ground you get rewarded for for defending uh and or denying as well yeah with so it's born out of with 220 240 people it's quite hard to spread out those scores uh so we really you can't you can't really just have major minor you know, and draw kind of thing, because you just have, you end up with a ton of people all on, you know, five majors or six majors or whatever. And there's kill points that are just separating. And that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, and so secondaries, uh, the year before we used secondaries, but I don't think we had a deny uh, mechanic. And then, you know, there's sort of, the, you know, plenty of anecdotal evidence or anecdotes of, you know, people swapping secondaries and things like that, or just forgetting and saying, oh, yeah, we both got it, or, oh, yeah, we both didn't get it or whatever. With the deny mechanic in there, you've there's an incentive to make sure that you've picked it and you're doing it and you're, you know, and you both don't just don't handshake it at the end or at the start or whatever, because it does actually quite affect the game and your standing. Um, and the killing a thousand points and not losing a thousand points, that was uh, something that we lifted from, you know, I talked a little bit before about um, borrowing from players packs uh, from other people. This is something we picked up from Six Nations, I think. Um, so, you know, I, I saw that in their pack and I thought that was really good. I think it was worth more points in their pack. I just wanted to, I didn't want it to be as important, but I still wanted it to count. And, it really kind of, I think it influenced some people who wanted to be competitive. I think it influenced their list building and stuff. So, yeah, it did the job. And I don't think we had people on the same score in the top 10, I think. Like, this is, as far as you and I are concerned, a century ago now uh, in 2020. But, um, you know, uh, I, I don't believe we had people on the same score in the top 10 because it just kind of busted everyone out slightly. But in a way that when you were doing it at the end, 
was fairly simple. Like we used down under pairings, which was down the page somewhat. But like when people were filling it in, it was fairly straightforward about how they do it. There was no complex maths. You either did or you didn't. And then it did all your scores for you. And yeah, it gave us some um, differentiated people's scores. And I think that's one thing to consider with the secondary objectives is how do you manage that people have either completed or they haven't completed? And it's easy for me to say to my opponent, hey, let's just say all three, we got all three or all two secondaries and we just play the game as is. So if you are going to go down a, a route like that, think about what your measures are going to be to ensure that your players are, I don't know, being faithful uh, or if there's a, some type of mechanic but the good news is, is as well is, you know, all of this stuff here, uh, there is software. There is tournament organizer software. You don't have to run this based on Excel. You don't need to be a formula wizard. Um, we have mentioned here that there is down under pairings. That is one tournament software. You do have best coast player pairings. You have tabletop.to. Um, any other tournament software that kind of comes to mind, Um majority of it's free or if there there might be a small subscription service that gives you additional benefits mm, yeah there's a couple of offline ones um tournament overlord i don't know if that still exists war score things like yeah. that. you know we use we used war score until we got too big um because i i'd used it from you know 12 players right up so yeah there are a range of options some Please of these tournament software as well, well is really cool is uh, they can self-report, and I know down under pairings, for example, and I think a few of them other ones, what they do is uh, the players will actually self-report their scores, and it means that uh, if if both players will submit the same score, uh, they kind of come up as a match and it gets automatically approved. But if there's a discrepancy, they essentially come to the tournament organiser. So it means that you spend less time doing data entry, more time managing the event, talking to people, taking photos, having a good time as opposed to sitting there just punching numbers. And I know, Clint, there was there were, there has been years in the past where you've literally just had data monkeys just literally punching in data, and that's all they've done. And I'm sure that's not enjoyable for all. Yeah, no. It's every every year before this year we we've had you know people who've just been chained to that TO desk putting stuff in, and then you'd have somebody who'd run away because both players had scored a major win somehow, or neither of them had done sports or something. So yeah, self-reporting tournament software is amazing as far as I'm concerned. I'm not going to go through your secondary objectives because this has changed. They're irrelevant Obviously, now. With, yeah. They're irrelevant now. Uh, but, but at the same time, I will I will say that uh, just because Games Workshop have the auxiliary objectives doesn't mean they're the only ones. I know Dave from NashCon, for example, makes up his own secondary objectives. So if you want to introduce your own flavor or make some that are based on your event narrative or the realm or anything you want to do, obviously, you can include them in your players pack or by telling them, look, your secondaries are these specific ones from auxiliary objectives. Yeah, and the, the ones in this particular pack, we always used like a mix or a modified version. And we always gave players cards with the secondaries on them so that, you know, they're not pulling out this big A4 piece of paper. They've got the cards and they know how to use them and things like that. So You do have the narrative achievements, which, again, I really like. Um, it's a nice little touch. That's the bingo card, right? Yeah, that's the bingo card. So basically there was a whole bunch of like for you to keep the players engaged. And I, I really like thinking about how do I ensure that my prize pool is distributed across 
uh, or at least everyone who comes to my event has a chance of winning a prize. I'm not just putting all my prize pool in first, second, third, and the person who comes last. One way that you've done this, Clint, is through the narrative achievements, which is essentially if anyone's played bingo, it's like, you know, all those bunch of squares and there's tasks. And uh, what were some of the tasks you had? Like, you know, uh, do do three damage on a, uh, on a arcane bolt. You had yeah. uh, what? issuing challenges there's the there's the really easy one which is the water boy you know um go and get your opponent a drink um things like that you know have a general duel have your general be the one at the end roll 12 on a charge things like that so there was a range of there were ones that we published beforehand like um have a the backstory for your armor name your characters come in costume or act in character or whatever um, you and your bloody pantaloons in 40-degree heat. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I do wear so, pantaloons. I got myself a point. Um, so, you know, we published those ahead of time so people could do them, but then some of them were just gameplay ones on the day, and, and we had them on the grid, and we arranged the grid so that you could probably, you know, so that not all the hard ones were in the centre or whatever like that. So and it just was another element that people could do where they could tell a bit of a story in their game that wasn't necessarily you know they might not um they might not be there to um win or they were knew that they were losing so they would go right oh well my general's going to go for a you know his last stand or something like that and tick them off and you know and it wasn't just narrative players that did that you know there was a bit of a joke about uh, one of the bendigo boys tristan being a narrative gamer now because he'd completed his card and you know he was there to play competitively so but no it's just a bit of fun people get a bit of joy out of it um a, it was sort of an evolution of me looking at uh, Warhammer achievements over in the UK that they used to run alongside Blood and Glory that Steve Wren um, used to do. So it's sort of looking at that and going, yeah, that's pretty cool. We can Why don't we integrate this into our event, you know, into the one event and, and make it, you know, a little bit of fun for people who are there just to, just to hang out, but they get to tell stories with their, with their games. Yeah, I think, I think it's important to remember that not everyone is coming there to win the event. That's not everyone's goals. And how you as an event organiser caters for everybody to ensure everyone walks away, you know, having a good time, thinking their money is worthwhile investment. The last thing people want is to, to spend $20, $30, $50, $100 coming to an event and getting smashed. People don't like that. So where, where are the other ways that you can create value? Narrative achievements is one. I know for me, I stole something very similar from Steve Wren, but I, I turned it into a negative achievement. So basically mm. at the start of my round, I would declare on Facebook and I would say, guys, the first three players to fail a three-inch charge, they come to the TO table and I give them a prize. There's spot prizes. It might be a blister pack. It might be um, some, some 3D printed terrain. It could be some dice. It could be something from the Mortal Realms magazine, whatever it might be. It's something fun that um, you're rewarding people from rolling a double one on a, a spell cast or rolling a, a, a double six on a spell cast or, uh, I don't know, you, you fail a nine-inch charge, whatever it might be. You know, yep. you find ways to distribute your players' pack, uh, players' prizes. Yeah, spot prizes are, uh, yeah, have always been a good idea. I've, I've got a pair of lovely glow-in-the-dark combat company dice from Blowing Manfred up back in the old days of Warhammer Fantasy. 
I, I what I would always do is I'd, I would go out and buy like those Warhammer quest boxes where you get like five or six heroes in a box and just split them up, put it in a little, mm. um, like a little sandwich bag. Uh, people don't care about the box. If you can give away a prize at like $10 or $5, um, it's, it's, it, it goes a long way uh, mm. to make people feel like that they can walk away with a prize and they had a great weekend and they walked away with something. Hell, last year I got some candles. I bought, uh, I bought about 15 different, like, really nice scented candles as a prize. And people would come up, pick it up, because then they could go back to their partner and say, hey, look, I, I brought for you. I've been away for two days playing Warhammer, but here's a, a lovely scented, I don't know, salted caramel candle. And uh, it was a nice little little moment that some people really enjoyed. It was something I, I didn't spend too much. I don't but... there's, one of those, there's one of those candles in this house on the... <laughs> <laughs> did, did, was. Did your I think it's been used. I think it's been used. I don't know. Okay, but, um... I was going to say, was it enjoyed? But either way, like think differently. Think think differently, and on how um, how you might do stuff like this. It, it could just be a drink voucher. It could be uh, a buy your next coffee. It could be uh, a combat gauge. It could be a set of dice. Like, just yeah, so fun. Little. Yep. Anyway, so you... for all the players. That's it. That's exactly right. Uh, what to bring. So, again, you've kind of been very clear on what to bring. You've got fully painted army, your war scrolls, the general's handbook, and your applicable FAQs, uh, your copies of your army list, obviously, to, to provide to your player, your opponent, uh, your three pieces of terrain. So talk to me about this one. Um, that one, that might be a surprise to some people or what this means. Yeah. So um, because we have expanded at a ridiculous rate, um, we – well, in order to make it so that I wasn't making terrain for the rest of my life, we borrowed an old idea of having players bring some terrain with them to play. So we put half the terrain on the table and then the players between them put the other half of the terrain on, you know, so there's, you know, 10 to 12 pieces of terrain on the table. Um, it's good because people, some people really went out of their way and made terrain that fitted their armies. Some people just dry brush them as the right ruins, and that's fine. But what it means is it has a bit of engagement from people uh, around the terrain. It reduces the TO burden um, on, on just like... Because if we're doing half the terrain for the tables, there's 110 tables, five, six pieces of terrain, you know, that's... 550 nearly 700 pieces of terrain that's a lot um it's a lot for any one person to do or any group of people to do um so yeah that's why we have that terrain in there we've had it for a couple of years now i think we did it we had it for three years two or three years um and we have a prize based around terrain so that it also um, incentivizes people to put put a bit of effort in or put a bit of thought in. And, and obviously we look after people who are flying in from, you know, New Zealand or the States or whatever. We look after their terrain as well. So I, I brought um, extra terrain for like Seth, for example. Um, yeah. But, you know, what, what's really cool, and that's probably one of the biggest barriers as an event organiser, is how do I create six, eight, ten pieces of terrain per table? You know, I've got Sydney GT, that's 100 players, that's 50 tables, 50 tables times by up to 10 pieces of terrain. That means I've got to find 500 pieces of terrain. That's a lot. And I'm getting 65 bucks a head for prizes, vent hire, terrain. 
65 bucks per person doesn't go very far. So one way that you can mitigate that is asking your players to bring, to contribute. Uh, ben Spinetti, for prime example, won one of those prizes off you and had done some really cool deep kin prizes. People might have seen his low tan bar. They've seen the wave. He had like a, created a wave that had eaten up an Azerite ruins. Um, but either way, that's a, that's a cheap way that you can create a whole bunch of scale um, at a very small cost of a prize. And people really enjoy, I know Deke has done some really cool terrain, thematical terrain. I've seen a whole bunch of our players and they really get into the to the swing of it. They go to Dark Fantastic Mills to buy some cool stuff. They can, you know, make it themselves, they kit bash. Uh, and hey, you've now got some cool terrain at home. Mm, that's it, absolutely. And then there's a couple of events where you bring terrain to, so it's not just CanCon, you know, my event, your event, I think Slaughter is one as well. So you've got these bits of terrain made that you can take to these events and you don't have to worry. It's not like you're making a new set each time. You've made your three three or four pieces. That's it. You've just put them in a box and then take them to whatever event needs it. So, yep, yeah, doing your bit. It's very cool. Like I've, I've had, you know, big giant mushrooms that I've gotten 3D printed from Dark Fantastic Mills uh, that I would put on the table for my Gloom Spike Gits. Nothing was cool enough than putting down my Loon Shrine plus a couple of really cool big uh, mushrooms as well and really kind of help create the immersion. And, and, you know, like it doesn't mean that my side of the table is full of my terrain. There's certainly a process that we we kind of we do all that. But, again, it kind of takes a bit of the burden off me, the event organiser. Mm-hmm. Some other things you've got here is obviously your, your, your counters, your dice, something that I would highly recommend people go out. And, and I, I do stress this is probably one of the most under-talked about features is the tray, some type of carry tray. Nothing is worse than having to unpack and pack your army in your cru- you know, your Citadel Crusade carry case or whatever it might be. Put it in like a TV tray, like a McDonald's tray. Please don't steal McDonald's trays. I'm not endorsing uh, stealing <laughs> people's, you know, takeaway trays, but putting it and moving around a venue, a venue or a convention or a, um, an event. Uh, glue for breakages, uh, very important. Uh, now more yep. than ever with, uh, with you know, um, with our stuff going digital, I have a lot of my battle tomes on an iPad or a phone, making sure I've got my phone that's fully charged, a calculator, some type of thing, working out points, but also a charger. I bring a little USB charger, um, things yep. like cold drinks, deodorants. Again, Deodorant give, me some, important. Give, <laughs> give me some advice of what to bring as well. Um, I'm certainly not providing deodorant, although actually I do have a can just for a... I think I think there was... Um, I think we'd gone to pick up water or something one year at, at Woolies the day before CanCon, and they had like a whole end of deodorant, and I remember putting it into the Facebook event saying there's no excuse now. It's only no. three bucks or something like that. Buy some. Yeah. So I'm, I'm actually going to do a video pretty soon about unpacking my tournament bag, and one of the things that I do have is a can of deodorant. Apply, <laughs> apply it frequently. Don't be a smelly, smelly nerd. Yeah. I'm not going to go through the full things here, Clint, but one of the things that I really enjoy about a player's pack is things like the rules etiquette. And the rules etiquette for me is not just what I have to do as a player, but but really illustrating how I, as a tournament organiser, will manage my event. If you slow play, if you don't attend the event, if you uh, have a rules dispute, and what's the process of me resolving those disputes? And if you don't like my, my, uh, my outcome, what what's going to happen and for me it really illustrates the way i'm going to manage this event 
Um, you may do all of this, you may do some of it, but for me, this is my articulation of how I am going to rule the event. Yep. And it sets out player expectations on what's good behavior and what's not, which once again, um, you know, this might be somebody's first tournament and they, you know, they may not be aware that um, making sure that they declare their intentions for dice rolls is an important thing because they play with their mate, Jack, who's in the, you know, they play in his shed or whatever, twice a week or whatever, and they just know how they get along. And then they come to CanCon and it's a very different environment. So it just spells out what um, what to do to be a good sport. And by a being objective, it means that, you know, there's a very clear expectations around it. Um, and we go through here, as you said, you're not going to go through all of them, but we go through what to do in a rules dispute, what to do when people don't turn up on time, what, you know, what's going to happen if you don't turn up to the table on time. Well, you know, if it's not by 10 minutes or 15 minutes or whatever it is in there, you know, you lose the game, you know, like you've, you've created, you've not respected your opponent's time and they're, they're being there to play you and, you know, they might have travelled. They might not have, but, like, it, it's not important if they did. But, you know, they're there to play and you're disrespecting uh, them and their effort by not turning up on time. What to do to concede, how we handle cheating, what to do if you can't come to the second day because just not turning up is not good enough um, as far as I'm concerned because... Once again, people put effort in. We put effort in as TOs. Other players put effort in. You've done draws, whatever. You know, if if you're a crook, it takes two seconds to send a text. You yeah. know, so generally people are pretty good. Yep. Yeah, like, like being, being open with your communication is critical. Um, so funnily enough, I, I had one player at my last Sydney GT who was uh, food sick on day one. I think they had some bad chicken and uh, they, they said, look, I can't come. I'm you know really sick on day one. And actually they messaged me before day two started. Uh, I think it was like the morning and said, hey, I'm feeling better. Do you mind if I come? I'm like, yeah, sure. No problem. Um, I'm absolutely happy for you to come. Like, there's no issue. But if you didn't tell me, I would be super pissed because it means that I would have drawn somebody. Uh, day one, uh, this player would be sitting there at a table for 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes waiting for their opponent. I'm going to start messaging you. I'm trying to work out where you are. It's half an hour eventually by the time we've made a decision. And this person who may have travelled uh, has is really set up a negative experience by waiting for their opponent who's not arrived. So having a process and being very clear, uh, even simple things like when do I provide a refund? If I kick you out of the event, you get no refund. If you tell me that you're dropping out of the event one week prior or the 24 hours prior, don't ask me for a refund because I've still got to pay rent. I've still got to pay for prizes. I've spent the money already. You can't get that from me. So being very, very clear on what you're doing before, during and after the event. And and that and in CanCon's case in particular the refunds and stuff because it all goes through the convention that's all set by them. Um, I don't even have to be the bad guy on that, but um, yeah, no, I absolutely. If it's a day before, I'm sorry, mate, but that's all spent now. Um, and we also go and I think this is important to touch on dice uh, <laughs> because let's face it, GW uh, makes some pretty atrocious dice, and I don't think it's fair uh, to use dice that are hard to read 
uh, in games, especially when you're trying to look, you know, four feet across the table or whatever and try and read those 20 dice um, and figure out what's going on. Um, that's not to accuse people saying that people with those dice are cheating, but it's more just about making it easy for everyone as well. And you might say, oh, yeah, but I know how to read these Fire Slayer dice. Um, yeah, but your opponent may not do. Yeah. And I think just having nice, clear dice is very important. Um, and then we talk about the symbols, basically symbols on basically symbols on the sixes is all it should be ever, but um, making sure that they're all on one side. So, yeah, uh, it's it's in there purely because things like the OBR dice and the Ineth dice exist. Gloom you know, Spite. Gloom Spite, yeah. They're cool. That like that's cool. Use them as counters or something, but not yeah. as gameplay dice. Another, another yes. rule that you might want to put in as well, I think, from a, a, a dice point of view, it's sometimes when you roll a dice, it doesn't roll flat. What's the rule? Do you re-roll? Do you keep it? And um, you know, sometimes when you roll that dice and it's not quite flat, it's on a piece of terrain, but it's a six, and you're like, oh, I really want that six. You know, for me, having a consistent rule to say if the dice doesn't roll flat you should re-roll it. So even just some of those rules like that uh, can be very important to have the expectations of what you expect from your players. Yeah. And and that's I think that's largely in part to a bit of a pre-game conversation that you can have sometimes if it's not dictated by, by the players' pack. But, yeah, that's one of those things. Yeah. Uh, that's cool. I think, you know, Again, we've got things like uh, basing, modeling, painting. So uh, how we, we've got this term called WYSIWYG, right? Or what you see is what you get. And uh, the irony of this particular pack is I'm pretty sure this text has followed every single player's pack potentially out there in the world because it says Forge World models should be the official Forge World models, no Vargives uh, uh, as Mongols, no High Elf Dragons as Magma Dragons. You see that everywhere. I love it. That, that literally, yeah, it's um, from probably one of the first players packs I ever wrote, and I see it pop up everywhere, you know, in Northern Irish players packs and all that sorts of things. And that's cool um, because clearly people are like, yeah, that says what I need it to say. Um, but it's, it's so models, um, talking about the expectation of models, um, because people have different levels of acceptance on stand-in models or proxies or whatever you want to call them or what what conversions are expected and things like that but basically what we say is if it says it's got to have a spear it should have a spear if it says it should be riding a horse it should be riding a horse things like that um i know dome has gone on and on and on about this previously on uh different shows of his um but we also say that you know if you've got something that's not standard to get in touch so that we can have a look and and because one per um, you know it's got to be easy for your opponent to figure out what it is um, from across the table like you might yeah yeah you'll go through the yeah this this model is this and this model is this and this model is this and this is my free guild general and Griffin and da 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 but two hours later your opponent's not going to remember that because they're having they're trying to remember all their rules and your rules and play and think about what's going on and they don't have time to figure out that the guys over there with yellow hats are these and the guys with red hats that look exactly the same are actually a different unit. Like, that's mm. not... You've got to try and make it an easy experience for people. And what what one person's acceptable is is may not be another person's. And so we kind of just kind of keep a handle on that and just... 
just sort of nudge people in the right direction. So, you know, we had some proxies come through uh, for this year's event that started off as fairly ropey. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I'm also not going to mention any names, but like it was fairly low effort, stick one model on another model kind of stuff. But by the end, once we'd had a chat and they'd sort of thought it about it a bit more, what they came back with was really good. And they just had to be sort of nudged in the direction of perhaps that's not going to be as effective as a steam in and you know maybe if you if you do a little bit extra you know it, it'll be acceptable and by the end it was like quite a cool little little conversion that they'd done but it was miles away from where they started and you know and it was definitely acceptable and i don't think any of his opponents had an issue with it so you know um and then I we also I, had sorry I, I think for me that is a and I, I Clint, Clint and I have talked about this a lot uh, behind the scenes and the reason for it is you guys you know how much I love Cities of Sigma, but the flip side of Cities of Sigma and seeing the inspiration of converting is that there is so many models that don't look like the what they look like. Um, you see things like uh, a Tree Lord Ancient holding a Hurricanum or a Luminarch weapon. You see people creating their own, you know, dwarf version or elf version or, you know, humanizing uh, a phoenix and it's not a phoenix, it's a I don't know, whatever it is, right? And while that is cool, inspirational, you're right, when I come to a tournament, is that clear to my opponent? And I see this right now with OBR. I see this with... Um, with Lumineth right now, people trying to bring in their old high elf models into their Lumineth. Is my great swords great swords? Are my great swords going to be stone guard? Is this techless model? I know you really love the old techless model, but how do you bring that into a new techless? And I, I guess if you have a cool idea, it's not to say that you can't do it, but talk to your new tournament organizer. And I think for, for me, this is being very clear is, is if you've got an idea, bring it to me, send me photos, let's chat about it. I want you to bring your model. If you, do, if you don't tell me, and I've, I've seen people where they've done something and it just doesn't look like it, I said, it can't be here. You need to, like, you need to go get the real model. I'm not being a dick. It's just you are creating a bad experience for someone who's getting surprised by something they're not expecting. Yeah, you've blue tech techless onto a steam tank. I'm sorry, that's not a Frostheart Phoenix. You know, like and I'm 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 guilty of having crazy ideas. Just where are we? There is my Wraith Fleet undead raiders stuff that's corsairs and skeletons and Charybdis zombie dragons and Merworm terrorgeists and stuff like that. But when I've been had intended to take it to things, I will check with the TO and I always try and make efforts to make sure it's really obvious what it is and what that two things look different if they're two different things. Um, something else I just want to touch on there is we've got that line in there about um, Games Workshop, even though they were supporting the event, there's no requirement for Games Workshop miniatures. And I think that possibly that's like even if your event isn't being supported by Games Workshop, just mentioning to people that you're cool with with third-party miniatures, you know, because, you know, Games Workshop isn't the only company out there that makes miniatures, and sometimes there are gaps in their model range that can be filled with something by, like, Avatars or War or Mercia or whatever. Well, well I, mean, I mean, literally, we're recording on the day that Gargans are going up for pre-order, and for someone who wants to run nine... Uh, 
man crushes, they may not want to get all nine from Games Workshop and they may mm. want to go to uh, Mercy and Miniatures. They may want to go to Reaper. Um, but I, I think this is really clear on what do I expect if you're going to bring a third-party yeah. miniature or if yeah. I'm allowed to. Yeah. And look, I don't think anyone outside of GW stores even cares, to be perfectly honest, but it's important to spell that out. Um, as long as we it have is, had that question, so as long as it's based appropriately, as long as it is a very similar size, um, you you want it comparable. I've seen someone use an Archeon with a is it a Tiamat, the old Dungeons and Dragons like Grand Dragon, but the base is much larger than larger than Archeon, so it, it has it should be comparable. Um, don't don't get a ten dollar Reaper Gargant and tell me that's a Mega Gargant. It may be a uh, maybe a smaller baby gargant, but certainly not a big gargant. Try to find something that's comparable, base it appropriately. Let your opponent know that um, is it acceptable? Isn't it? Isn't acceptable? Be clear. Um, people like uh, James Mabry who have mantic zombies. You know, I just um, this morning um, paint uh, undercoated some Fireforge game uh, zombies. So you know. Yeah, there are lots of options out there. Um, GW do make amazing miniatures, um, but sometimes they have gaps. So, yep, and that's fine. Yeah, but either, either way, regardless, state, state the rules. The other thing as well, as you've mentioned here, is things like endless spells. Like how does an endless spell look on the table? Uh, we, we do recognise as tournament organisers that uh, if I have five armies in my collection, I'm not going to buy five boxes of malign sorcery. So how? <laughs> it's it's only, you know, like 130 bucks Australian or something like that. If you yeah. want to, and, and by the way, the rule, burning and the, skulls. And the book is no <laughs> longer useful. You can't actually use the book that comes in that box. But the point is, is that uh, how do I go around it? And, you know, you've mentioned, you know, some similarities. You may even encourage things like the clear clear acrylic bases. So um, yeah. how how you match a mirror that and be, be fair, fair, but also try to create a synergistic force that looks and feels the same. You haven't borrowed uh, a bunch of witch elves from Dan Brewer. Liam, I'm looking at you. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so we've set out the painting expectation there as well. Um, Games Workshop have made it slightly easier recently. So we used to be sort of like tabletop ready, which was like paint every part of the model and then throw a wash on and then paint the color on the base. And we used to have example photos. Um, now, because Games Workshop are pushing, you know, a battle-ready standard, which is literally pretty much what I just said, um, but, but by making that their sort of base level, we can say, if you paint it following, you know, this video, or, you know, these, this is the standard that we want. Because people don't want to play grey plastic. And, and you know, and we have, yep, yep. We will remove models uh, from the table that are not painted correctly. Can is that, and is, is that, have. Is that, is, I was going to say, is that, is, that, is that an empty threat or have you done it? Oh, I have done it. I have done it several years. Yep. And I, and I can validate that because there was one event where I actually played at your event and the opponent that I played, you had removed half of his vanguard army so i was playing against like a 1200 point vanguard army because it was less than three colors and we hear this term three color minimum 
uh, and it creates a lot of confusion because is black, is gray, is it, do I like highlight a, yeah, a gem it's, it's and a got, sword and is that three colors? Well, that's why we, I don't, I think we used three color minimum the first year and then we went to tabletop standard or tabletop ready and then now we've gone to battle ready because they a little bit less specific for people to work outside the rules but yeah no we've removed models from the table before it always upsets people but they're always told ahead of time so be very clear be very very clear of what's expected and and and, and if you t and i think this is as well a really good rule is if you say you're going to do something do it uh because the moment you break your own rules um the people will break other rules because you're not living up to your own standards. So I think that's equally important as, as nasty as that is to take, tell someone to remove their models off the table or to go paint it overnight. Me, the opponent who may have flown literally halfway around the world to play at your event, I'm playing at a, an event that I've put so much time and love and passion into my army to get it ready. Uh, I'm now playing somebody who has literally just sprayed it, and it's it's not even painted. So, and this is not me being elite here, guys. I'm not here being some elitist that you know you must have uh, amazing painted armies that have to be seven layers of edge highlighting and you know OSL coming out of the wazoo. It is these events are meant to be special. People are meant to put focus, time, and love preparing for an event, and you want to live up to the standard that you're creating. If painting isn't isn't important then don't make it a rule in your place pack. Yep. So this here is a chain rasp. I'm sure it should be focused or it's going to be good enough, right? So that's a chain rasp painted by my 11-year-old son, right, who doesn't paint models or these are what some of his first models. He can paint to a battle-ready standard. So can you. So, you know, he is quickly building up a night haunt force that would be perfectly legal in any tournament I've ever been to, you know, and he's 11, <laughs> so contrast contrast it, paints made it easier for people and i know painting isn't isn't accessible to everybody I do, I, do I, fully appreciate that yeah I, but I, I yeah i do understand that some people have fine motor control issues and things like that uh, you know that's i'm not saying that you need to work harder but there's no excuse for actual laziness yeah <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. Cool. yeah and if you do have a challenge meeting that those painting requirements i had somebody reach out to me the other day talking about one of my tournaments coming up Talk to me about it. Say, look, I really want to come to your tournament, but I have these challenges or, you know, I work in a, a coal mine and I'm literally, you know, 14 days on and I'm only home for a couple of days. Like, but I really want to come. Cool. Let's yeah. work something out. Let's, but don't, don't come to my event, not having communicated with me. And uh, I'm surprised that. Yeah. Yep. So. A couple of other things you've got here. You've got things like you've set, you know, the, the any rules that you have around, you know, terrain setup, whether it's going to be, again, some of this stuff has been clarified um, in, the, yes, in the latest yeah. book. Uh, again, it, focus not on what is said, but why it's being said. So yep. having some of the terrain rules and how that kind of works, um, any interactions with, you know, how you win games and how we're doing kill points, how we're uh, clarifying any particular rules. One that comes up quite frequently here is measure, measuring um, cohesion or measuring uh, combat distance between two models that are on different levels. So this come from... I, it's South Coast GT. Yeah, I was going like to say South Coast. 16 or something like that. The, the, the mileage that's been gotten from that image is ridiculous i think i wonder if they realize how lot how much it would be used but it's just it says what it needs to say and it is quite self-explanatory so why recreate the wheel 
you know? even things like line of sight as well like you may want to clarify line of sight uh, you know, you've got you've got a whole bunch of just white things that even things like the way that you are counting uh, Citadel Wildwoods. I know for us uh, back in the day when we didn't have the old when we had the old version of the woods, you would clarify uh, if the hole was usable or if the hole mm -hmm. wasn't usable in the in the um, Citadel Woods. Um, you, you know, even clarifying, do I need to bring the trees or do I just use the empty base? Yeah, that was. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Yeah, we yeah, there was lots of discussion. That caused lots of discussion when we used to say that you can't go in the holes and you have to bring trees and all that sort of nonsense. So regardless I'm glad of the decision, it's been clarified. Yeah, regardless, the, the the point is like your expectation is if you're bringing wildwoods, if you're bringing a piece of terrain, you're not bringing um, uh, a piece of MDF cut in the shape. I, I don't have to go bring a, a realm shaper engine if I can just cut out the shape with a bit of MDF. No, this is what I'm expecting. Uh, if you're bringing terrain, if you're bringing models, if you're bringing endless spells, if you're bringing summoning, these are the expectations. Yep. Um, speaking of taking models off previously and expectations around terrain, I did actually have to ask someone to remove his pretty much were just MDF shapes of the tree bases and he'd stuck some rocks on, like not to build them up, but just to base them. So they they were not... Not acceptable, and we told him to take them off. So that happened yeah, earlier this year. So people not following the expectations. And again, this all comes back to the players' pack. The players' pack is the expectation and the the written the written uh, I guess agreement between event organizer and player, and then player to player. You know, you've got mm -hmm. this agreement of what we all can expect. Yep. You've got out to say the rules. You've talked about some of the awards on how you win those awards and the different types of awards, things like best in Grand Alliance. Uh, I really like those awards, by the way, being best destruction, best chaos, best order, um, things like best opponent, coolest army, wooden spoon, uh, best terrain, narrative. Um, I, I've done prizes for things like um, clubs. So if you've got a gaming club, uh, you might do like an aggregation or an average or um, some type of like club award. Um, there's lots and lots and lots of different wards to create uh, a fair distribution of wealth. Uh, yeah. for, for me, the, the, the trophy that might go with this, with this award is probably more valuable than the start collecting box or the prize you give me. So I have really pulled back from giving my money to the first, seconds, and thirds because they've already had a great game of Warhammer. They've probably gone four and one, five and oh, plus they've got a trophy as if I need to give them more stuff. Um, yeah, and yeah, that's that's something that we we looked at in the past year, you know, and just basically you win, you get your your cool, awesome trophy, um, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, and then basically everyone's got a chance to get the prizes. Then um, we also go through because um, we have two different painting slash hobby prizes. We've got the coolest army, which is you know things like. You know, the Blake Kerwick Memorial Award where he won it for three years in a row and then didn't come this year, um, which is why it was the memorial. But, you know, it's it's a cool army on the big display and da-da-da-da. And why is that different from best paint, like Judge's Choice Best Painted? You know, and we, we go through that so that people have their correct expectations around that as well, so... Yeah, so if anyone looks at the CanCon video, so I think The Honest Wargamer did uh, a little video with Vince Ventrella uh, going through the, the different armies, but you could see the difference. You had um, uh, James, was it Slanish? Who, who won Best Painted? It was James, wasn't it? James Lynch, yep. 
yeah, James Lynch with his it was his beautiful slanish, you know, perfectly executed Golden Demon style slanish. But then Danny Carroll won coolest army with his carriage and overlords. So from a display barrel point, of dwarves. his barrel of dwarves. <laughs> and and while Danny's um, uh, painting skills are certainly up there, uh, from a pure painting aesthetic, James was superior on that day. However, from a presentation overall, Danny was just far superior there. So yeah. it allowed people to bring different things yeah, to the, the mix. Multiple different things, yeah. It's almost like an Arby's on Parade meets uh, a Golden Demon. You could kind of judge different things in different categories and, distrib again, distribute the wealth. And I've seen different events do maybe not whole army. They've said, you know, present uh, best monster, best hero, best battle line. Um, you might do endless spells. At one of my events, I, um, I found people who created their own uh, relocating orb. And I actually awarded a prize for the coolest relocating orb. You know, you had Johan, you had a whole bunch of different objective markers. Yeah. Yep. Just taking taking it to that next level. Very, very oh. cool. Uh, again, just, you know, this is, again, this kind of goes back to people aren't there just to go 5-0. and oh. People are there to show off their painting, their hobby, their display boards. Uh, and if you put this in the pack, people will really uh, get into the, to the swing, which then kind of comes back to the standard. And the painting Rubik's is certainly something that uh, I've seen work really well. And it is much of an expectation as a checklist too. Absolutely. So we run this painting rubric. It's capped. Um, so basically the amount of points on offer uh, far exceed the cap on painting. And that's to make sure that people who put the effort in and you might not be the most amazing painter in the world, but if you go through and you put some effort in and you just have a look at these and see what you can accomplish, you're going to, you're going to hit those, you know, that 20 point cap. And, um, and then we look at, you know, the big uncapped scores for things like shortlisting and whatever. So, you know, if somebody's hit all of those, you know, those extra five point ones, we go, oh, okay, well, we'll go and, you know, that gives us a good thumb, like a good guide to go and have a look at their army for shortlisting. But it's, it's a way that we have the rubric uh, structured in such a way that if you're not good at freehand, but you're good with a bit of green stuff and kit bashing, you can pick up points there. Or if you're not good at that, but you can freehand, you get them that way. Or if you're kind of okay at a bunch of things, then you pick up points that way. So, you know, you don't have to be amazing to pick up the 20. You just have to put a little bit of effort in, tick some of those boxes as you're going through and painting your army, and you're good on the day. So. I think for me, one of the big reasons I love the capping as opposed to an uncap, because some people are like, well, whoever just does the best, they should get the, the prize, right? Like, you know, for anyone, if I if I put in 30 points worth of, um, of painting, shouldn't I get the 30 points? But then I think about what am I trying to achieve and what are the challenges that, you know, the general lay of the land has. And display board for me is a prime example where, People who travel, I fly to a lot of tournaments. Our friends from New Zealand, our friends from England, people have travelled to CanCon to my events um, to bring a two-by-two -two display board on an aeroplane. just doesn't happen. Uh, it can be quite challenging for some people. So by 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 putting, a, a, I guess, a forced in there uh, or, or not having a cap, it does mean that just naturally someone who has to fly is at a competitive disadvantage 
without actually rolling a dice. So thinking about the interaction, thinking about what are you trying to measure? Are you trying to measure the who is the best Warhammer player? Are you trying to measure the best overall? Are you measuring the best painted? And you've already got prizes and trophies for the mm. best painted. What are you trying to measure? And then how do you uh, measure against it? And this is purely just a checklist. And uh, I, I love the detail as well. So if people are trying to work out how you measure their paint score, you're not plucking a number out of the sky. You are really using this as a say, well, um, can you show me? And you'll ask me, you'll go, Anthony, can you show me where you've got any kit bashes? And I'll go, here's my kit bash, here's my kit bash. And you'll tell me if it's an extensive, a minor, or the whole army has been kit bashed and converted. Yeah, hopefully that last one's fairly obvious. Um, but like some kit bashes or some freehand is so good, you don't notice it. And that's the thing. And that's why we always ask, because um, there's nothing worse than having you knowing that you've done this kit bash, but it looks so much like a real model that people don't notice it. So, but yeah, it's quite easy to get the 20 if you just put a little bit of effort in, read the rubric and then paint accordingly. You know, a quarter of those points are just making sure that it looks cohesive using yeah. the same basing across the army and, you know, a couple of cool colors. Like, well, I'm pretty sure from memory, like when we looked at some of the numbers, on average, at least 60% of people at CanCon last year had hit their 20 cap. Uh, I think there's only a few outliers that really kind of brought it behind. I'd, yeah, I'd go further than that. I'd say probably 80. Yeah. And then there's a bunch of 19s. You know, there's people who just couldn't, who 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 didn't have free hand and didn't have a conversion because maybe their army didn't lend themselves into it. And it's like, I'm, I'm building OBR at the moment and I'm finding that I'm, I'm really um, like, I'm going to have to think outside the box to hit some of these these things on my own rubric mm. because of the way that the army is so i kind of understand but yeah a great question that you can think a great question has come from the chat that i'll mm. acknowledge from razor tree is um just referring back to the painting um was are these painting points going into the overall points for the tournament or is it in a separate category and i think the beautiful thing here is it can be both depending on who you are and what type of event you're running Clint, I'll throw it over to you first. Yeah, so our because CanCon is an overall kind of all-rounder kind of tournament, um, we have it included in the tournament score. So that at the end, um, you know, it's added into your total score, but it's not worth more than a major win. So it's not possible to lose one of your games and then somehow come first beating somebody who won all theirs because you got extra pain points or whatever. But I have seen where it's not part of the overall score because the, the tournament itself wants to make sure people paint their stuff, but wants to reward gameplay primarily. But yeah, it, that's really just how you want to target your tournament. I've seen plenty of events as well where they've had it as a, um, I guess as a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's basically if you don't meet a certain painting criteria or if you don't have a minimum, uh, like a battle-ready army, you're not eligible for any prizes. So you don't get any points, but mm. you're just not eligible to walk away with any prizes or any awards. So depending, again, on what type of event you're trying to run, if I was going to be at my local game store and I was trying to foster a community, I wouldn't run a paint score. Maybe I have, like, a best painted, but I wouldn't reward anybody because it's not, it's not important. If I'm trying to determine, that, yeah. sorry, 
you don't want to penalize people who have just started and you're trying to f grow, you know, yeah. Well, I remember the very first pack that you had, Clint, and maybe it was a second pack as well. Um, because you were trying to foster the Age of Sigma community coming out of the ashes of Warhammer Fantasy Battles, you had said that um, you 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 can't use square-based models. So Warhammer Fantasy used to be on square bases. They can't be on square bases because competitively there is an advantage between squares to round. But what you would accept was people putting uh, temporarily putting them on uh, MDF or a circle base should you want to play Kings of War, Warhammer Fantasy Battles, if you want to use these models as a dual model. Uh, at the time, you would accept them from being temporarily put on a movement tray or some type of basing. Now that it were like five years on, make make the decision. Are you playing Fantasy Battles? Are you playing Sigma? Things need to be on rounds. So thinking about the audience, thinking about what you're trying to do, thinking about who you're targeting if i think of the bell curve right you got a bell curve you've got these 10 to 20 percent of players who are super casual probably brand new probably aren't 100 invested into sigma they're there narratively they're there just for a good time they're there because they don't know what to expect that you know that's very kind of all over the shop you've got this other end of the spectrum which is they're there to win the prizes the tournament points the ranking points uh the the glory the the fame their name put up in lights on twitter they're there for the win then you've got this big fat middle so think about the type of event you try to run think about what would attract those players whether it's going to be the price point whether it's going to be the distribution of prizes and the awards the way that you try to articulate your story uh to target that that market um it might be a doubles event um, if, if you're trying to grow a community. Maybe uh, I remember one event that I ran, um, I, I put in an incentive that uh, it was a doubles event. And if you if you would let me, the tournament organizer, pair you up uh, with somebody else, I would actually give you a discount because I knew that not every player had a friend to play with. But people were a bit kind of a bit weird playing with someone they don't know. So I'd actually incentivize them with a few dollars off um, but again, think about your audience, think about what you're trying to achieve, think about what would most attra attract them to your event. Mm -hmm. Anything you'd want to add to that ramble? No. <laughs> cool. Glad, glad I either acknowledged it or you just like, shut up. Uh, and then finally, you've got things like uh, expectations, right? So in this example, you're expecting people to have their submitted roster if you're not familiar with using uh, War Scroll Builder. Um, Another one as well is if you are going to use tournament software. So, for example, I use uh, and Clint uses um, Down Under Sigma, whether it's Best Coast Pairings, whether it's Tabletop TO, most of these softwares ask you to register in advance. Uh, you may want to uh, submit your scores, so you'll have to actually self-record your scores or maybe you put it in a workbook, whatever it might be. But you may want to show them the steps on how to register uh, and or submit your scores on the day. Yeah, so we had so we've wanted War Scroll Builder output for a couple of years, um, and then we just kept getting people who were doing it wrong. Um, so that we put that guide in at the end, and um, still got people who did it wrong, uh, but less. And then we kind of yeah, so yep. And then at the end, obviously that version history, just letting people know it's changed, which is just a it's me being a bit pedantic, I think, but like knowing. So if you've if you've already bought 
a ticket and you've already read the pack and I say, oh, there's an updated pack, you know, that you can just look at that list and see, okay, what's he added? What is, what has changed that might be important to me? And in those particular cases, in that example, it was just updating scorekeeping and things like that. So This has been a pretty robust discussion about a player's pack. <laughs> And yeah, um, about it's, one it's, document, <laughs> it's, it, and that's just one document. You're right. There are so many great versions of documents, whether they are one day events, whether they are multi day events, um, whether they are like four man team events. And we're going to be talking about talking to a whole bunch of tournament organizers um, about their experiences, about their different um, uh, how they run events. Do you have any additional thoughts, any advice, any like anything that we haven't probably talked about from a – probably the only other thing I would think about is I, I like to put my sponsors on the front of the players pack. Um, I know that, uh, again, it's very hard to articulate a return on investment to a, uh, a company to say, hey, give me free prizes, give me some vouchers, give me something, and I'll promote you. And mm. one way that I like to articulate that is thanking my sponsors either on the front page, on the back page. I actually do both uh, to get their brands out there and create a little bit more value. And it allows me every year to say, hey, do you want to partner again? They're like, absolutely. Yep. Um, sometimes we – I don't know why it wasn't in that one. I'm sure it's been in ones before and it's in the little book that people get handed on the day, the sponsors. Um one thing is don't be afraid to just pick up someone else's and run with it, like and copy it if you're not sure about running your own, like writing your own uh, player's pack. Don't be afraid to just borrow some some aspects from it. Here's an example of mine, by the way. So, um, yeah, so you, can see, you can see that this logo. I like to put some of the faces of, of my uh, support team as well on the events. These are all made in Microsoft Word, by the way, so you don't have to be some master of, uh, of PowerPoint. It uh, kind of just shows well, you. If, if you're doing players packs in PowerPoint, you need to be taught a lesson, I think. Uh, no, but again, it kind of, you know, I, I, I can share, share my love and my sponsorship. And again, this is just some examples um, that we're just kind of showing. It can be wordy, it can be pretty, um, you know, just having a, a rubrics, you know, the different types of, there's one that I really enjoy. Um, uh, my AOS influencer that uh, basically rewarded people using a hashtag on Twitter or Instagram of their activity, either their games, their painting, uh, their preparation, and just getting the buzz out there. Uh, that was a lot of fun as well. So, yep. Clint, any, uh, anything else before we kind of bring this home? Uh, I'm absolutely excited about Gargants. I know uh, that has nothing to do with talking about players' packs, but for me, this is a document that helps, again, the community, either the tournament organiser, set the scene, what to expect, uh, and, and how are they going to manage their event. It's the player knowing what they're signing up for, that social contract when they pay their dollar dues on what they are going to be getting involved in, and that interaction between player and player event organizer and player and just generally how we're all going to have a wonderful time during this event i think something that's going not going to have been in any players packs previously that you and i've written but it's something that's going to be considered for quite a while forward is covid uh guidelines and um considerations and things like that and i think um Look, there's not a lot of events on at the moment, but in some places they're starting to ramp up. Um, New Zealand, maybe in Australia soon. Um, 
but I think it's important to make sure that you understand and make your players understand or be comforted by the fact that you've considered those sorts of um, those sorts of things. You know, making sure you might have a couple of hand sanitizer stations and making sure that you're complying with your venue COVID guidelines and reinforcing that to players and things like that. It's unfortunate that because it already dominates enough of our lives that it sucks that it's crawled into the hobby in that way. Uh, but I think it's important and possibly reassuring to players that you've perhaps thought of it and are giving it some, you know, are doing something about it, you know, in a couple of months, um, you know, in a couple of months' time when we start having events kick off again, it's it's going to be something that we need to consider. So, Yeah, um, to give you an example, here's Sigmus. Um, Why would you do that to him? What? Sigmus? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, in my in my sickness pack, I do have. Oh, where is it? Uh, I do talk about being COVID safe. Yep. I can't find where exactly where it is. Yeah, but that's it. But, it's <laughs> flashed up a couple of times. Has it? But, um, there like, we are. Oop. There you go. It, I oh, it's literally there. I'll bring it back. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, it, it, so like, yeah, it's something that needs to be considered. Here's my expectations, and this is obviously uh, being based on the government rules at the time. Obviously, that's going to change. Um, and any requirements in regards to social distancing, whether it's going to be about how many players can be in a certain space, is uh, a mask mandatory or not mandatory, um, whatever it might be. And again, people, again, just expectation, you know, simple things like don't touch someone else's dice, uh, clean your hands before uh, you move around, or what am I going to do as an event organiser to ensure this is going to be safe? Yeah, um, well, as an event organiser, you're possibly one of the, you know, like not you specifically, but it's you're probably one of the people who has to be considerate the most because uh, you talk to everyone throughout the day and you wander around and you touch lots of stuff and you talk to people and stuff like that. So. Well, there's another example, right? Like I've included, I wouldn't normally include lunch in my events, uh, but one thing that I've done with this one is include lunch so that I could get a prepaid packed lunch. So everyone yeah. will have their name on a lunch uh, and it means that people aren't congregating at a cafeteria uh, and it, it means, that, again, I can create as, a safe space as possible um, as the event organiser. I obviously can't control everybody, but this is how I'm going to manage the event to be COVID safe. Look, you can you can at least create the framework and if people want to follow it, then, you know, it's up to them. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, no. And, look, think... and if you and if you've got to have face masks, and I'm I'm making it a mandatory thing, um, and tell people if you don't wear a mask, uh, you will be kicked out. Mm -hmm. if, if, if that's the world you live in, and that's yeah, the rules yeah. you've got, like just make it yep. really clear on what you expect. Um, and if I don't want to wear a face mask, this is not the event for you. So again, I've I've illustrated what I'm expecting. If you don't meet those expectations, don't come. Here's your money back. Just yeah. Come to another event. Yep. Any final, 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 final comments before we bring this home? No, I think that's pretty good. All right. This is a pretty robust discussion about players' packs. Appreciate everyone who hung out with us live. It's probably not the most exciting thing, but I know events are starting to come back, and I know uh, that we're all starting to think about the Age of Sigma community continues to grow. It's it's continuing to be inspiring. Uh, more armies are coming out. More players are coming. We're bringing our friends. Uh, the tabletop simulator community has exploded, and I'm sure those people 
want to start playing on the tabletop. And as these events start coming back, I think this is now the opportunity for us to rethink and think, what does the world that we want to start setting up and how do we take the best of, I've stolen ideas from you. I've stolen ideas from Ben Curry from Bad Dice and um, Blood and Glory. I've stolen ideas from Heel and Hammer with um, South Coast GT. I've stolen ideas from Bobo. I've stolen ideas from Adepticon and LVO and Nova. Um, that's just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many awesome events. I've stolen ideas from Joel McGrath in the chat for Bendigo Bushbash and how he was using his realm spells uh, well before every army had realm spells. So mm. I think when you start looking at different ideas, you make a mongrel of the event that you want to run, and then you add your own flavor and your own spice. Um, that's what I've certainly done, and that's how you kind of create an awesome players pack that aligns to um, what you want to run the day. Yep, absolutely. Clint, any shout-outs? Any If people want to talk to you uh, after this, where yeah, can they find no, you, Clint? They can get in touch with me on Twitter. I think it's an Instagram as well as at Clint Mallet. Um, and then on Facebook at Clint Herald is the, um, is the Facebook account that people can chat to me on if they want to talk about Warhammer. And I might actually put a couple of players packs in the episode description when it, once it finishes rendering. So if you want to look at any of my, my particular packs, I've written a narrative pack. I've written um, a GT. I've written a whole bunch of packs. Clint, I'll add one of your packs. Um, if anyone else wants to send me a link on Twitter, uh, hit me up on Twitter and I'm happy to include your players pack as a reference. So people have somewhere to build off, um, TGA, the grand Alliance is an awesome place as well to find players packs. So, um, just, just get across them, see what people are doing. Um, grab the ideas. I, I know one more shout out here. I like something that, um, Michael Thompson, um, in, in Australia, he's running an event in November. And one, one, one idea that I really love that I've stolen from him is that we obviously now know that the player who, who rolls the dice to go first can choose who goes first and who goes second. But he's added a little rule to say, well, that player could also instead choose which realm to play in. So it basically means one player gets to choose the realm, one player gets to choose who goes first and second. So he's added a nice little spice to that. Um, I really liked it. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. I've lost Clint. As that was the most no. most most unexcited acknowledgement. Clint, thank you all I'm for your listening. Time. I'm listening. I'm sure you are. I was thinking over the repercussions of that. Sorry, I, was, I got lost in the in the how that would impact the game. Sorry, I yeah. And if it does, and you know what? If it doesn't work, you tried it, and you find another way. There's no yeah. such thing as failure. or any feedback. Yep. All right, Clint. It's a pleasure. Chat. Thank you very much for hanging out. Until next time, roll more sixes, mate. How good was that video? Surely it's going to go straight to the pool room. If you enjoyed that video, I would appreciate it if you crush that like button. And if you have an opinion, leave it in the comment section. That lets YouTube know it's a great video and it should share it with other Age of Sigmar players. Cheers to all the bloody legends here on the screen who have financially supported AOS Coach on Patreon on YouTube members. Their contributions have helped me improve the quality, frequency, and the variety of content on this channel. So cheers, guys. You are bloody legends. Until the next video, don't forget to shoot the heroes and have a good one.